Lord, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your presence. We feel it this morning. I'm asking that you would illuminate truths from the scripture to our hearts today, that we would become more like your son. Release the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Open the eyes of our understanding. God, I'm asking, stand here with me this morning. Hold my hand. Let me speak as an oracle today. We give you thanks. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Okay, turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter, Romans chapter 5. And uh, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the series we've been on, talking about glory and tribulations. We haven't quite gotten to that phrase yet, but we're going to, probably next week. This week, we're just hoping in the glory of God. That's our phrase. Let's go ahead and, and read through these verses once again. These are the summary verses that describe what we have in our justification. I would encourage you, if you haven't heard uh, anything in the series so far, you can download it uh, from our website, ihop-atlanta.com, and that'll bring you up to speed. So rather than going back and doing a lot of uh, summary, we're just going to go ahead and forge ahead this morning. So uh, Romans 5, <clears throat> verse 1, says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Very, very rich verses here. And um, last week we talked about access by faith into grace. And that, that faith that, that we stand in, that, and that it's the grace uh, that we stand in, that, and the faith that continues to call us to endure. We're enabled, we're enabled to endure the trials and the challenges of this life by faith and grace. And so faith is what accesses that grace and enables us. And uh, we went over that in detail last week. And then the grace that he's talking about here, it's grace to stand, but it's also grace that enables us to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And that phrase, the glory of God, it's got uh, a couple different you know, ideas behind it. One could simply be talking about the, the, the weightiness of God. And a lot of times what we, what we do is uh, we... Uh, focus almost solely on the power aspects of who God is when we talk about glory. And so in charismatic circles, we think of revival services. We think of power manifestations and healings and uh, supernatural occurrences, and we say the glory of the Lord was, was manifest. And I agree that the glory of God includes power manifestations, but power manifestations, it's not solely, uh, they're not the sole feature of the glory of God. There's many, many uh, different things that contribute to or make up the glory of God. It's the weightiness of God, all that God is, uh, even to his emotions and to the depths of his being and to his thoughts. The glory of God has a, an array of different features to it, more than just his power. So that's one strand of thought when we think of the glory of God. However, Paul here is talking about uh, hoping in the glory of God in, the, in, this, in this sense, that we hope in the glorification of God. We hope in God being glorified. 
We hope that, that through our lives, God would be seen as glorious. And that's the idea here. It's not specifically talking about uh, some power manifestation. But what it's, it's talking about is this. It's the mentality that through my life, the Lord would be ascribed glory by others. That when people see my life, when they see the way I live, that others would be drawn to then ascribe glory to the Lord, to glorify God. And so uh, I I love uh, how David says in Psalm 29, he calls the earth to give glory to the Lord. He says, give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And the point is, there is a glory due to the name of the Lord. A glory due to the name of the Lord. And the point of our lives in this age should be what Paul is describing here. That we, by faith, we access grace that enables us to stand. And furthermore, that by grace, we hope that our lives would glorify God. Hope in the glory of the Lord. That there would be a proper glory given to the name of God by the very fact of my existence. Oh, that's good. That's a good way to live. Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, it's the song of Moses. (laughs) He's 120 years old. He tells us in Deuteronomy 31, he goes, I'm 120 and here's what I think. (laughs) And then he In chapter 32, he lays out this song. The first few lines of the song, he says, Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. Ascribe greatness to him. All his works are perfect. All his ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And so what we're talking about when we say hoping in the glory of God is ascribing greatness. To God, that our lives would be one that causes others to even ascribe greatness to God, and that the glory of the Lord would be seen through the way that we live. Now, the challenge is this much of our theology, much of our teaching, um, it tunes us this way that we would desire to see ourselves actually glorified and benefited in this life. Much of our teaching is that we hope in our own benefit rather than hoping in the glory of God. And when our benefit uh, uh, doesn't seem to be um, first and foremost in our Christian experience, we think that's not God. When we're not being benefited first, many times we think that then whatever we're going through, that's not God. So, If a trial comes our way, or a challenge, or if we have to go through and endure sufferings or persecutions, oftentimes we think, well, this isn't God. I remember one time I was talking to a friend of mine, and I was in in this uh, moment of decision, and my heart was in pain because I couldn't discern what the Lord was telling me to do. And... uh, and, I, and I, I wanted clarity from the Lord, but what I realized was the fact that God was withholding clarity from me was uh, demanding me to plunge myself into God in a deeper way. 
It wasn't that he wasn't going to give me clarity. He wanted to give me clarity, but what he really wanted to do was get my heart. And I was suffering emotionally. I mean, in my soul, I was like, God's not speaking. Where is he? Why would he do this to me? And my friend kind of just looked at me and he goes, what do you mean? I go, well, I know for sure he doesn't want me to suffer. And my friend looked at me and he goes, really? He goes, I don't know about that. And he quoted a few verses and I went, oh man, I don't even want to talk to you. <laughs> you know, and just get away from me. And because I was coming out of the, the background that I had that God doesn't ever, ever want us to suffer. But the, the scriptures are clear that there's suffering in the will of the Lord. Oh man, I'm going to have to teach a whole, well, I am going to teach one on suffering. But, uh, There's suffering in the will of the Lord. And so what happens is this, because we don't have a right paradigm of biblical suffering, we don't have any value for it, we don't have any value for going through trials or going through sufferings, and we're mostly been taught and attuned that everything that God uh, does in salvation for us is for our personal benefit because we think that way, then we don't, we don't rightly ascribe greatness and glory to his name. In other words, we think that whenever we go through a challenge in our lives, if it's not benefiting us, it's not God. But I want to propose this. That, that there may be many, many times that you go through things in life that don't feel like they're personally benefiting you. And the key is that God is working the truths and the realities of, his, uh, of the nature of his son into your heart. That through the trial, through the pressing, through the tribulation, that you begin to manifest an aroma, a fragrance of Christ. And through that fragrance that comes out of the crushing... Then he is glorified. But we don't have much of a palate for that. We have a palate for get me blessed. Fast. How, do, how fast can I be blessed? Hundredfold return, lay it on me. And we don't have a, a, a much of a palate for the crushing, the necessary crushing that brings the, the aroma of Christ from our lives. And uh, we, we like the idea of resurrection power. We just hate the idea of the cross. Are you guys here? And so what it boils down to is this. A life that hopes in the glory of God says this. Lord, whatever you got for me. Whatever you want out of my life. It doesn't matter if I'm exalted or humiliated. Sometimes exaltation is the, is the greatest humiliation. I, I, I don't know in your experience, but what I've seemed to notice is the Lord will take the person that hates to be in the spotlight, and that's the very one he puts in the spotlight. He exalts the humble, and he humbles the exalted. Ultimately, all for his own purposes. And so, the idea of hoping in the glory of God is living the lifestyle Regardless of whether you're exalted or humiliated, the lifestyle that glorifies the Lord the most. And so most of us like the idea of the glory of God, but the truth of the matter is we've got to look in the mirror. I have to look in the mirror and say, okay, Lord, do I really hope in your glory being manifest in my life regardless of what it is that I go through? 
regardless of what comes my way, do I truly hope in the glory of God without respect to my own benefit and personal preference? Paul's message, when you read through the New Testament, when you read the writings of Paul, his message wasn't that he wanted to look good so that God would be glorified. His message was, it doesn't matter how he looks, he just wants God glorified. And there's a massive, massive difference to that. And I think much of our Western Christianity has taught us, you've got to look good, you've got to be blessed. I remember one time I heard a preacher say, hey, if you don't have money, go ahead out there and buy you some clothes and fake it till you make it. No, on TV, well-known, like, I'm sitting there like throwing stuff at the television going, no! No! That's not Christianity, beloved. Christianity is God. I want you to be glorified whether I look great or whether I look horrible. Whether I'm going through times of abounding with all sorts of temporal things, I want you to be glorified. You know what? That's just as much of a challenge as going through times with nothing and God being glorified. Have you ever noticed when people abound with finances, they abound with blessings, they abound with, with you know, accolades? A lot of times... The Lord's not the one that's getting glory in that. I, I like you guys. Have, did, you ever, did, did you hear what I just said? You ever notice a lot of times when people are abounding, especially ministries, they're abounding, that Jesus isn't necessarily the one that's, whose face is on the advertisement? It's just a thought. It's just as hard to abound and glorify the Lord as it is to be abased and glorify the Lord. But I think so many of our models, the idea is get as rich as you can, get as, you know, whatever, successful as you can, and that's abounding in God, and and in there God is glorified. But, you know, what I really wonder is what does the life truly look like that admits the fragrance of Christ? The aroma of Christ coming from the life, whether it abounds or whether it's abased. And that's what Paul's Christianity was. He says, you know what? I don't care what it looks like for me. He goes, I don't care if I live or if I die. I don't care if I abound or if I'm a base. He goes, either way, I want whatever glorifies God in my life. Philippians 1.20, here's the verse, the, by life or by death. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. I believe he's talking about being ashamed that he doesn't glorify God. In other words, we're going to stand before the Lord. All of our works are going to be investigated. And I believe Paul is sitting there and he's, he's thinking about his life in, in, in light of standing before the Lord. He goes, he goes, my hope and my earnest expectation is that in nothing I shall be ashamed. In other words, before the Lord. He goes, but with boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. Whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 2 Corinthians 4, he said it this way. He goes, we always carrying, we're always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I tell you, the apostolic... Theology 
of the way that the life of God is manifested through the New Testament believers is this, that the the believers would cling to the cross continually manifesting death in the flesh, continually resisting personal preference, continually resisting all that would exalt themselves unto Jesus Christ being exalted and glorified. Hoping in the glory of God, beloved, it has that mentality that no matter what comes in my life, whether it's abounding or abased, whether it's persecution or love, that Jesus would be seen and arrayed as glorious. And I don't know that we fully comprehend, nor are we able to discern, the life that goes through trials and persecutions, and many times slander, and yet through the midst of it, stays happy and alive in heart, unoffended with God, at peace, even through persecutions and afflictions. You know, the person that goes through, you know, massive trials, I mean, maybe losing everything, friends, family, and they come out the other end unoffended in love with God. Oh, what a life! I mean, can you imagine if you lived this whole life in suffering and you came out on the other side and you weren't mad about it? Beloved, think about this. How foolish will it be when we get there with the Lord and we're mad, we've been mad our whole lives that we didn't get more temporal stuff? You have the fullness of riches available to you in Christ. Ages and ages of glory and pleasure. Yet we live a life upset because we didn't make a few more dollars. Or people didn't treat us right. I'm not communicating. Oh, to live a life hoping in the glory of God above all things. That, That when they assail you, when they speak against you, all things falsely for his name's sake... That you just bless those who curse you. You do good to those who spitefully use you and abuse you. And and in doing so, you, you heap hot coals on their head. You don't take vengeance because vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. Beloved, this is a life that glorifies the Lord. I mean, there's many different versions of it. I You know, I... I don't want to make, the only, make it sound like the only way you can glorify the Lord is by being abased. Because certainly, there's glory in abounding. But I don't think it's what we think it is. I don't think the glory in abounding is all about how much temporal stuff you can get in this life. What I wonder is this, when the accounts are settled, and the day that we stand before Him, and those that have abounded with many temporal blessings how the percentage, how the pie graph is going to look. Stuff that was spent on you and stuff that was given away for the glory of God. And I'm blown away by the testimonies of many that have lived this life simply while wealthy. And how much richer will they be in the age to come? 
because they've spent their goods wisely. And oh, to have the heart of gladness and peace without offense through trials and tribulations. To have that means for sure you're rooted in the comprehension of what the justification means, that you've been proclaimed innocent, of what peace with God means, and you comprehend how to access grace by faith. See, the way that Romans 5 works is he's giving us things that build on one another so that he can actually hit us with the heavy punches. And the hope and the glory of God, it's really a jab before he hits you with a haymaker, the glory and tribulations. You following me, boxing example? So he goes, you got to know you got the justification. You've been proclaimed innocent. You got to know you got peace with God. You got to know that by faith you're able to access grace to stand no matter what comes your way. It's all through Jesus. And then he goes, and by the way, that, that's how you can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Rejoicing in this idea that God will be glorified through all that we do. So, I wrote this little quote. I just want to read it to you. I'm feeling kind of, I don't know, Art Katz-ish. If you don't know who that is, he's a fierce holiness preacher. He's gone to be with the Lord right now, but he challenges me and when I'm not living very Sermon on the Mount-like. Anyway, this quote. Spiritual sickliness results when we preach preference-centered, man-exalting gospels rather than cross-centered, God-exalting gospel. Ultimately, the cross-centered, God-exalting gospel exalts men, but not without the means of the cross. All must embrace the humiliation and death of the cross in order to experience its resurrection. None are exempt. And so, to hope in the glory of God, one thing I realized as I was meditating on that phrase even this week, was I can't live my life willingly wanting to abandon myself to embrace the cross unless I have a right comprehension of God in His glory. Of the greatness of who God is. See, if I kind of think God's a little better than me, then I'll struggle in my, in my mind with laying myself down unto His ultimate glorification. If we've got a low view of God, is my point. If our view of God is low, then we won't abandon ourselves in this life. Because really, if you, if, you have a, if you have a view to live your life glorifying God in all that you do and say, the pressure gets off. You're just like, Lord, whatever. But the only way to get there is by having a high view of God. Seeing God as, as glorious and exalted, as magnificent, as far above all else. I, I love, I, was, I went back through and I began to read uh, A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, again this week. If you've never read the book, you've got to read the book. A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. You've got to read it. And, I, and I, I went back and read the book. And in the book it said one definition of uh, uh, of God is the being without origin. Just let that weigh on you for a minute. There's one being without origin, and that's God. The being without origin. And I just thought about how, how much that makes him superior over me and over everything else. 
everything has an origin except him. And so my point is, the more that we comprehend how glorious he is, the more that we'll willingly live this life for his glory. Does that make sense? And because um, we don't have as high a view of God as we need to, what ends up happening is we don't live abandoned for the glory of God. We kind of wrestle with this idea of how, how much should I lay my life down under his, his great name being praised? How much should I, should I be abased? How much should I allow that to happen for, for God's ultimate glorification? We wrestle with that idea, and the reason why is because we don't have a right picture of how great he is. Hebrews 12 says this in verse 28, says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And the point is this, that the way that you offer God an acceptable service in this life is by having your heart struck with awe. That's the doorway having your heart struck with wonder, with amazement, seeing God as, as so grandiose, I mean, so magnificent, having your heart shocked. When our hearts are not shocked with the greatness of our God, I tell you, we will make a lesser uh, image of who He is, and then we will live less abandoned unto His glory. Psalm 33.8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. And let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. Oh, to stand in awe of God. I'm just looking at these verses and I'm realizing, Lord, how natural have I made you? How normal have I made you? How much impotence have I, have I ascribed to you? The one who is omnipotent, I've actually thought there's things you can't do. I've actually wondered in my heart is, are you able? How great is he? How much does the revelation of God strike your heart with awe? And I tell you, when, when all for God, when, when, I mean, just that, that all-consuming wow that's inside, when that is not there about God, oh, we're living lesser than we ought to live. And we can't live abandoned to his glory because we don't see how glorious he is. I, uh, I pulled together some Tozer quotes just because they're so good. They're just, I mean, they're just awesome. Over this issue, how great and how glorious God is. And if he's been diminished in our eyes, I tell you, oh, we will not live for his glory. And I was thinking to myself, anything that encroaches upon making him great in my mind, it's got to be a false ideology. Anything that diminishes his greatness in my mind, it's got to be false. And anything that expands on his greatness in my mind, you can't make him greater, but anything that makes me see him as he really is and it broadens it in my mind, then that's, that's got to accord with truth. Because I don't think you can rightly ascribe to him the greatness of, that he is. I don't think you can, he can be too big. He's God. Here's some Tozer quotes, just for fun. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble 
as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has not done deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. With our loss, the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. Amen. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. (laughs) One more. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. How high is our opinion of God? That, I tell you, that question is so, so important. How glorious is He in our minds? We've reduced God many times just to being a system of belief, just a list of do's and don'ts. But that's not who He is. He's a divine personality. He is great. He is the most high God. The NIV likes to call him the sovereign Lord. And the verses are so plentiful that describe his brilliance, his power, his majesty. I mean, throughout the Psalms, David is starstruck with amazement over who God is. And I tell you, this idea of hoping in the glory of God, it has as its cornerstone a right knowledge of the glory of God. For without a right knowledge of the glory of God, you'll never abandon yourself to His glory. Does that make sense? So what I did was I, I just threw together some, in no real order, some attributes that I just want to reference for a moment, but I want to I land with the humility of God as one of the greatest attributes of all. But uh, just think about it. Just take maybe even some time this week and go through this as I lay out some attributes. Just take some time and pray through the concepts of who God is. What is God like? Those are, that's a, such an important question. What is God like? First, He's powerful. God is powerful. Now, you know, when, I, when a, an idea is cliche, an idea about the word or an idea about God is cliche to us, it's a good, idea, it's a good uh, sign that we don't actually have re- uh, revelation of that idea. Powerful. And one verse that I was kind of locking in on this week is that Hebrews 1.3, it says that uh, he holds all things together by his words. <laughs> I mean, everything is held together by his words. You know, we measure power and strength by, you know, in human ways, like how much can the guy lift? How fast is he? God speaks a word and atoms stay together. In fact, every atom 
in the universe is held together because the Lord said. (laughs) He said, let there be light. And there was light. And then after he created light, he actually created the sun and the planets and the firmament and the universe and the hundred billion solar systems. (laughs) And all of it, every atom of all of that Because he said. I mean, mean, he is strong. He's so powerful. He's so, I mean, so beyond powerful. Every supposed challenge of this life is so minuscule compared to the might that he holds. I, I mean, the verse says, All of the nations, every nation, think about it, it's like dust on the scale. He's not talking about a bucket of dust. He's talking about you go to weigh the vegetables and there's dust on top of the scale and it doesn't even register. All of the nations are like dust on top of the scale compared to the Lord. Oh, he's powerful. Oh, whatever we're going through is so small. Oh, we're so small. And we are so silly. We're, we, we say stuff like, what's your IQ? Let me tell you something. If there's a number that can measure your IQ, you're not that smart. Because there is no number that can measure his IQ. If there's a number that can identify how much weight you can lift, you're really not that strong, I promise. Because every nation is like dust. And he, he holds everything together by words. I speak words, my words fail. My words fall to the ground. I speak words, I don't even believe my own words sometimes. Come on. He speaks words and things appear. Things are created. He said, let there be light. And light hasn't stopped. He's powerful. And he's he's benevolent. He's kind. And I just love that. Because you could have the big, strong guy who's a little bit mean, and we'd all fall in line and go, yes, yes, sir, whatever. But he is so strong and kind. He's benevolent. Psalm 145, 17 says, he is kind in all his deeds. 100% kind. Always kind. Always kind. You know what it is? We have misinterpreted the actions of God in our lives so often that we've ascribed to him the idea that he's not kind because we misunderstood because we didn't have all the details. We didn't have all the information. We didn't have his vantage point and we thought he's not that kind to me. But oh, you don't know. You don't know how kind he is. He's the kindest one there is. He's benevolent. He's good. 
He's good to you. I love it. Ephesians 1, 5, it says, He works things according to the good pleasure of His will. The good pleasure of His will. You know what I realize about the good pleasure of His will? Yes, His will is good. Yes, His will is pleasing. Yes, His will is good and pleasing to Him. But you know what else? His will is simultaneously good and pleasing to Him and to us. He works all things together for good. Those that love God and are called according to His purpose. For good. For good. He's kind like no other. Think of the kindest, sweetest, I mean, handing out candy to everybody, grandpa, that you can think of. You know what I'm saying? You've met that guy. He's like always being sweet. My grandmother was like that. She'd always hand out candy to everybody. Think about the kindest person. They are infinitely unkind compared to God. His disposition is tender. He's beautiful. I mean, beautiful. The perfection of beauty. He is one to make you gape and gaze in shock and thrill your soul like a jasper and a sardius stone. He's like brilliant light. He's stunning to your frame, magnetic to your soul. I mean, we think of beauty, we think of sunsets, created shadows. Sunsets are created shadows. They merely speak of the glory of God. They they hint to us about the glory of God. The most brilliant, I mean, star-struck night gives us a hint of where it's going. (laughs) I mean, pure light. What if you could see what makes up pure light? We can't even see it. Think about how frail we are. Our lens is broken. You look at light and you're struck with glare. (laughs) What if you had enough capacity to gaze in? What if you could actually see even the sun? God's far greater. The sun is created. It's a ball of fire in the sky. He's created hundreds of billions of suns. He's beautiful. Whatever the supposed beauty is of this life that we are attracted to and enthralled by, I tell you, it is so minuscule compared to the truth of the beauty of God. He's sovereign. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven, he does what he pleases. Yes, sir. Do whatever you want because you're that big. I'm in total agreement. He doesn't need my agreement, but he does what he wants. He sets up the construct of humanity and does whatever he wants. He's fully sovereign. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things for good. Fully pleasurable. 
fully pleasureful. Oh, Psalm 1611, don't we love that? In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forever. The height of ecstasy is only defined in light of what God manifests as it relates to pleasure. Nothing else compares. Fully pleasureful. And it's such a lie that we've believed God is not pleasureful. But I'm saying, take the most ecstatic experience you've had in this life, and it pales in comparison to what's available at his right hand. He's powerful. He's benevolent. He's beautiful. He's sovereign. He's pleasurable. He's mysterious. Psalm 145.3 says his greatness is unsearchable. Think about this for a minute. Just think about this. When we see him, we're going to be like him. What I think that means is our capacity to comprehend him is going to explode. And all of a sudden, we are going to begin to receive detailed information about him that we couldn't have even received the way we are right now in this body. It's like our, our, our pipeline is too small. We're working on dial-up. You know what I'm saying? We need like gigahertz or whatever, tera, whatever, terabytes. We, we need it big. And we get this much. It's going to open wide. And the detailed information about God. We're going to get a glorified body, a glorified mind. You know, you only use a percentage of your, of your brain in this age. I believe when you get the glorified body, boom, the other 90% opens up. And who knows what you can do then. And what you can understand and what you can process. And then... We are going to be flooded with information about God that we've never comprehended. But here's the point. We're going to gaze and study him with a glorified mind, receiving unbelievable amounts of information, flooding us, thrilling us, blowing us away. And guess what? That's going to be all day. Not for a week. Not for a month or a year. Think about it, if you studied something all day, every day for a year, and you continue to get new information about it. His greatness is unsearchable. It cannot be exhausted. Beloved, in a billion years, we're going to be going, this is amazing. Did you get, did you get this point? And we are going to be flooded with more and more revelation of his greatness. And we'll never exhaust it. Unsearchable. Do you know who you're playing with? The God whose greatness is unsearchable? You could probably find out the key details about my life in about seven minutes. In a trillion years, you'll be getting started on God. He's mysterious. He's mysterious. And then finally, I'm landing. He's humble. Oh, he's humble. And this is the one that just messes me up. Because he's so grand, and he's so humble. 
I, I love the verse, Psalm 113. It's, it, it says, he actually humbles himself to behold the heavens. <laughs> like, it's humiliating for him to actually look at the creation he's made. He humbles himself to behold the heavens. But what's, what's more is, he doesn't stop at humbling himself to behold the heavens. His design and destiny for humanity is partnership. He humbles himself to partner with humanity. Not for a moment, forever. We're going to marry God. We're going to be joined forever with God in real partnership. That seems really unfair for him. You know, did you ever see the couple and you go, man, he made out like a bandit. Or, he's, you know, the, the girl, wow, she made out good. I feel like we are the epitome of like, wow, we made out good, poor guy. You know, look at God and look what he gets. He goes, this is exactly what I want. And I think that in no way diminishes him. I think that in every way glorifies him. Because he's, I mean, he's absolute power, absolute beauty, absolute majesty. His greatness is unsearchable. And he humbles himself to partner with me and you. So crazy. In, in Luke 17, I'll just, I'll just tell you this, this scriptures, because this is where it's, this, this is, the brilliance of God. In Luke 17, Jesus says this. He goes, listen, after you have lived this whole life, he goes, I want you to say to the father that you're just an unworthy servant, only done what the master has told you to do. He goes, none of you, if you had a servant who was serving you during the day and it was his job to to make you dinner, none of you would have him come in and then you set him down and then you make him dinner. You would have him do his job during the day, come in, make you dinner, and you would allow him to serve you first and then he could eat afterwards. He goes, and that would just be his duty. He goes, I want you, when you finish this life, he goes, to have that same mentality that says, Lord, I'm simply a servant and I've only done what, I was supposed to do. I've served you with my whole heart to glorify you. But you know what's crazy about that? While he says, and he uses this idea that the servant would never be served by the master, he uses that idea. (laughs) But he says about himself, in the next age, you know what he's going to do? He's going to set us down, the servants. He's going to gird himself and serve us. The Father is going to serve us the wedding supper. The Son is going to serve us. He says in Luke 12, He said, I'm going to gird myself and serve you in the ages to come. I don't know about you, but that shatters my bubble. The God who's huge. I mean, beyond what my little pea brain can even begin to deal with. He becomes a man. Okay, that's just off the charts. But actually, we're going to spend the ages to come, and he 
He's described by Isaiah as the servant of rulers. The servant of rulers. And I was thinking about it this week. He goes, I want you to have the mentality that you've only done what you're supposed to do as, as a servant. And don't expect to be served by your master. And he, the, all the while he knows, but I'm going to serve you. And I was thinking about it this week and I thought, oh my gosh. What did he do at the Last Supper? <laughs> he, he gets the water and the towel out and he begins to serve them. Peter's going, not me, no. He goes, unless you let me serve you, you don't have any part of me. <laughs> the greatest imaginable thought you have is inferior about how great God is. And that great God, exalted in every measure, is so humble that not only does he desire human partnership, he actually wants to serve us. See, when we have a right picture, and I've done just like scratch the surface job this morning, but when we have a right picture of the glory of God, then I can easily live my life in this age and say, I don't really want to hope in my own glory here, Lord. I really don't care what happens to me, actually. I want to hope in your glory. I want to hope in a life that would be so laid down you would look great as a result somehow. Whether it comes through me being, having a heart that's rejoicing through suffering or having a heart that's humble through abounding. When I see you rightly, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter what I'd get to do in this age. What really matters is that, oh, that I'd hope in the glory of God. Beloved, isn't that what we want to do? Been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You're not your own. And I know we've been we've been told different stuff, you know, about how Christianity is supposed to be and how you're supposed to get all this blessing. And God wants to bless you and add no sorrow to it. But ultimately, it's not for your greatest honor, it's for his. Doesn't your heart doesn't the spirit on the inside of you say that through laying your life down to glorify the Lord, that there's a greater glory in that than, than, than being puffed up and seen as glorified by men in this life? Oh, there's something in me that witnesses to me that says, if I'll lay my life down, it's a greater glory than anything men could ever ascribe to me or anything I could ever attain on my own. Does that make sense? I want to hope in the glory of God. I want to rejoice in the hope, the glory. Amen. Let's stand. God, we want to be a people that humble ourselves before you. That you would be glorified. And then your promise to us is that we would be exalted. In light of the greatness of who you are, that almost seems unfair, but you are so good. I want to rejoice in this hope. Through our lives, you'd be glorified. God, we've had a lofty opinion of ourselves and a low opinion of you. 
Please forgive us. God, would you strike our hearts again with revelation of the greatness of who you are. We'd say with David, I will meditate the glorious majesty of God. One thing I ask, this one thing I seek, oh, to gaze on your beauty. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Oh, God, no matter what we do in life, you would be glorified. You would be magnified. You've humbled yourself to include us in the process. And you've desired us and you long for our participation. You've said we're going to rule with you and sit upon your, your throne with you. You're going to exalt us to the highest place while you humble yourself to serve us. Oh, I pray the weight of those truths would bear down upon us. Let it crush all of our self-preference. Oh, that we'd be a people that dance and sing spin over the thought of you being glorified rightly. Be glorified. Be glorified.